It has begun. Mortal <coughs> Combat. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. Today, in honor of the upcoming release of NetherRealm Studios' new video game, Mortal Kombat 1, I am reviewing Mortal Kombat 1995, as voted on by you, the listeners, over on Instagram. A couple weeks ago, I got a chance to revisit some of my old favorite films when I was a kid, and this week, I'm thrilled to give you another throwback episode. Instead of being a guilty pleasure film... This will be a full-fledged review. If you've not seen Mortal Kombat 1995, you have approximately 28 years to catch up. (laughs) Today we are going to be discussing spoilers throughout the whole episode, so there's not going to be any type of post-credit talk. We're just going to go right into things and kick things right off. So, is Mortal Kombat 1995 a flawless victory? It's time we test our might and get to the review. Round one, fight! Alright, so Mortal Kombat 1995 revolves around three unknowing martial artists who are summoned to a mysterious island to compete in a tournament whose outcome will decide the fate of the world. Mortal Kombat is directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, also known for the Resident Evil film franchise, Monster Hunter, Death Race, and is also otherwise known as Mila Jovovich's husband. <laughs> it's written by Ed Boon, John Tobias, and Kevin Droney, known for Highlander, starring Robin Shu as Liu Kang, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa as Shang Tsung, Christopher Lambert as Raiden, Lyndon Ashby as Johnny Cage, Bridget Wilson as Sonya Blade, and Talisa Soto as Katana. I want to go into this by giving you a backstory on my history with Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat, of course, is an icon of the gaming industry, and in its 1995 film adaptation, it's still held to this day as one of the greatest video game films of all time. (laughs) From the absolute banger of the techno soundtrack to seeing Sub-Zero and Scorpion represented on the big screen... As a kid, I was enamored by this movie. (laughs) I rented it so many times from Blockbuster. On my Guilty Pleasures episode, I did mention that Grind was my most rented movie at Blockbuster. I want to say Mortal Kombat was a close second. This movie got a lot of late fees stacked up on my parents. (laughs) Oh, man. But the reason why I loved Mortal Kombat as a kid, not just the movie, but the video game, is that in the game there are various characters from every background. You have supernatural ninjas with the abilities to freeze people, set people on fire, a lightning god, a movie actor, a couple military soldiers, etc. And if you're unfamiliar with the way the video game works, it's a side-scrolling fighting game with a flair for extreme violence and brutality. So you have these characters with supernatural abilities that are literally destroying and killing one another, and there's blood on the screen and everything. The cast of characters have one extra ability that separated Mortal Kombat from your regular Street Fighters, your Tekkens, and all the other fighting games that were around at the time, and that is the Fatality. The fatality is the ultimate 
badass move that someone could do in the game. It's an extremely graphic finishing maneuver that the combatants could perform on their opponents to gloat or flourish off a victory. Normally, a fatality is done by the person controlling the character entering a sequence of buttons when the prompt on the screen says, finish them. An example of that fatality would be Sub-Zero's spine rip. Sub-Zero would freeze the opponent, reach into them with his hand, and rip out their spine and skull and hoist it up in front of the camera. And it's because of this gratuitous violence that the video game industry changed forever. Mortal Kombat is literally responsible for so many of the restrictions and policies that we have in place in terms of the way video games are sold. Children and parents in the 90s had never seen anything like this before. There was blood, intestines, bones, and even some sexual references. The game was so provocative that the FTC and the gaming industry created what's now known as the ESRB rating system. You know, when you go to a video game store and you buy a video game, you normally have a rating on the bottom of the box that says it's either rated E for everyone, T for teens, and then of course there's the M rating. The M rating means mature. It's for audiences 17 years old and up. Mortal Kombat was single-handedly responsible for the creating of the system and the M rating. (laughs) Due to the backlash that came from this game releasing, parents all across the country boycotted Mortal Kombat when it released. But of course, it became so popular that it was primed to become the first legitimate video game adaptation for the big screen. People hated the video game so much, but that hatred somehow segued into some strong financial success. And that strong financial success led to a big movie studio seeing dollar signs, and they decided, yep, this will be the next big thing in movies. You know, there are obviously other video game movie films that came out before Mortal Kombat. You have Double Dragon, Super Mario Brothers, the really weird one with John Leguizamo and uh, Bob Hoskins, and of course, Street Fighter. But all released to extremely negative reviews from critics and audiences. I think Super Mario Brothers may be one of the worst (laughs) adaptation films of all time. That movie is so fucking crazy. (laughs) I might do an episode about Super Mario Brothers later on, just on the absurdity of what happened with that movie. And this became the next big thing. And as a kid, I loved Mortal Kombat. I used to dress up like Sub-Zero every Halloween... My brother and I would fight in the backyard and pretend we're Mortal Kombat characters. We would mimic the same moves that they would do. I would tell him, get over here. And I would like shoot my hand out. And my brother would pretend to get caught by the uh, rope and then come at me. And we would do combos. It it was very fun. And as a kid, we, we just grew up with these games. We got every single one that released after the first one. We had uh, Mortal Kombat 2, Mortal Kombat 3 Ultimate. We then segued to a PlayStation 2 where we ended up getting Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance, Mortal Kombat Deception, and then the weird RPG game that's now kind of a cult classic known as Shaolin Monks. And then, when I became a young adult, the Xbox 360 was releasing. And with the Xbox 360 came Mortal Kombat 2011, which was a big leap forward for the franchise graphically, technically, narratively. 
following an interactive narrative story, Mortal Kombat 11 was like a complete reboot, loosely reinventing the stories from both Mortal Kombat 1 and Mortal Kombat 2. 2011's game was an absolute game changer for me. It reignited my passion for the franchise because it was stagnant for quite a while, and then it came back with this version, and it kicked ass. They got rid of the 3D fighting and the weapons and all the dumb crossovers that were happening uh, in the middle of the 2000s. We saw Mortal Kombat characters fighting DC characters and stuff like that, but this went right back to basics. 2D side-scrolling fighting action with better graphics, better fatalities, and just an overall kick-ass aesthetic to it. It also did my boy Ermac justice. (laughs) I'm a huge Ermac fan, and they finally included him in the main campaign as one of the main antagonists in the story. I loved it for that. Ermac got a redesign in Mortal Kombat Deception, And it carried over to Mortal Kombat 11, and I love what they've done with him ever since. He has this weird, like, ancient Egypt mummy vibe to him. I played hours and hours on that game, and I I had some pretty good combos as Ermac, I'm not gonna lie. I had a a combo where I could get, like, up to 75% damage on the person's uh, life bar in just one uh, combo. I don't think I still have that uh, in me, but at the time, when I was really heavily invested in this... When I was a huge gamer, that was the game for me, was Mortal Kombat 11. I think I still have the collector's edition in my closet. I'll have to bring it out one of these days and take a picture. Mortal Kombat was a huge leap forward, and every game after it has been moderately successful in terms of it critically. People have seemed to really respond to Mortal Kombat X. That introduced a new system of the video game where you can switch between three different fighting styles per character and the graphics were stunning since it leaped from 360 to Xbox One and PlayStation 4. And then you have Mortal Kombat 11, which came out just a couple years ago, and that is still hands down the best graphical Mortal Kombat game that's ever existed. That game is beautiful. My only gripe with Mortal Kombat 11 is the cast. They went with a lot of new characters, and some that were carried over from Mortal Kombat X. The ninjas that were included were basically just Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and Noob Sabot. So my boy Ermac and Reptile, they all got kind of the short shaft in Mortal Kombat 11. Even uh, the fan favorite Melina was not included in Mortal Kombat 11 until they added her as DLC which also got a lot of people off the Mortal Kombat bandwagon when Mortal Kombat 11 launched. I think it was most subdued launch of Mortal Kombat's franchise, even though the gameplay was phenomenal in MK11. So with the newest game, Mortal Kombat 1, set to launch on September 14th, they're introducing a new fresh spin on what we've come to know in the series. They're taking a few ideas that were presented at the end of Mortal Kombat 11 and basically rebooting the franchise again, giving it a fresh new spin. This time, they're not restricted to any type of source material. We're going with a fresh new story that has Liu Kang as an elder god, and it's a weird alternate universe, kind of playing on that whole multiverse idea that we've been seeing a lot in movies and video games. And now it's actually making its way into Mortal Kombat. And I cannot wait to see what they do with the video game here on September 14th. Now with my love for the series, I naturally have a soft spot for this movie that we're talking about today. 
1995's Mortal Kombat is the epitome of 90s action cheese. And rewatching this movie blasted me with pure nostalgia. I immediately thought back to the days where I'd go on a long road trip to Arizona to see my family. And I would take my dad's Mortal Kombat CD, throw it into my Sony Walkman CD player, put on my headphones, and I'd be listening to it in the back of the car on the drive over. And that soundtrack was fucking awesome, by the way. I love that uh, soundtrack. But now that you know my history with the video game, I think it's time we get to the review of Paul W.S. Anderson's Mortal Kombat. Round two, fight. Now, looking through the lens of 2023, does Mortal Kombat 1995 hold up? Not really. But before you grab your pitchforks, I mean that it's a capsule of its time. I'm not saying that it's a bad movie. I'm not saying that the graphics are horrendous and and offensive or anything like that. But I do think it is a time capsule of the 90s. It's a product when... John Woo films were king, and before The Matrix revolutionized CGI and special effects. So there's a lot going on in this movie that looks like it's ripped straight from the 90s and 80s. There are plenty of establishing shots that are mixtures of matte painting backdrops, and the characters are superimposed into the environment. One example of this comes when Johnny Cage lets Goro fall off the side of the Outworld Temple. You can clearly see that the character was kind of pasted on top of a video they captured of the clouds and the temple and they just kind of shrunk them down it's very old school in the way that it looks almost like a Bela Lugosi Dracula film back in the day but I I kind of like that I like looking at this film knowing where we've come from in terms of technological advances and all this stuff it's pretty awesome I think Paul W.S. Anderson actually made the best with what he had to work with at the time. At the top of the episode, I did mention that John Tobias and Ed Boon were credited for writing the script of this film. For those who don't know, John Tobias and Ed Boon are the creators of Mortal Kombat. And having them hands-on in the development of this movie adds to its authenticity even more. They managed to incorporate plenty of references and Easter eggs that are pertaining to the game's franchise and history. You can feel that. Not a lot of movies nowadays have the original creators on board to write and develop the the actual adaptation. The only other example of that I could think of is probably HBO's The Last of Us with Neil Druckmann writing the actual television series. And Neil Druckmann was the person that created the video game too, so... It goes to show that if you have the actual talent that developed the source material on board to help shoehorn in the references and the love for their craft into the adaptation, you can get a good product. And audiences and fans are going to love you for that because they know that it's coming from a genuine place of authenticity. And that's what this movie has. The film's main characters, Liu Kang, Johnny Cage, Sonya Blade, and Shang Tsung are cast pretty well. With my personal standouts being Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa's Shang Tsung and Lyndon Ashby's Johnny Cage. And a small shout out and honorable mention goes out to Trevor Goddard as Kano. He was pretty good in this movie. Tagawa, in particular, I think was born to play the evil sorcerer Shang Tsung. He was so iconic in this movie. His one-liners, his bravado, there was something very Broadway about him in the way that he presented this character. He's very regal and upstanding and stern, and you just feel intimidated by his presence when he walks into a room. 
He's so beloved and iconic for this movie that Ed Boon brought him back for Mortal Kombat 11. In Mortal Kombat 11, Shang Tsung isn't just a side character. He actually plays an important plot in the Aftermath DLC expansion. Hiroyuki Tagawa's performance carries that forward. They actually brought him back to motion capture and record all the dialogue of Shang Tsung in the video game from 2021. It's very awesome, and I loved seeing him back in video game form. Now, Lyndon Ashby, who plays Johnny Cage, in my opinion, steals the limelight quite a bit from Robin Shu's Liu Kang as the main protagonist of the film. Sure, Kang's revenge arc is the center of the story, but it's Ashby's charisma and charm that injects much-needed humor and life into this movie. If they did not have a Johnny Cage, this would be a very by-the-book revenge story, and I don't think it would have worked. But Johnny Cage gives this movie some light-hearted attitude, some excellent one-liners, and probably some of the best action sequences in the movie. I also want to make quick mention of Christopher Lambert's portrayal of Raiden in this movie. Originally, I didn't really respond to Raiden as if he was the badass elder god that I remembered from the video game. However, as I look back, his involvement in this film made this incredibly successful. They needed star power on the cast, and with him coming off a of Highlander, it was very necessary for him to be this big name to be brought on to play Lord Raiden. And as much as I love James Remar as an actor, his portrayal as Raiden in Mortal Kombat Annihilation, the sequel to this movie, makes Lambert's portrayal look vastly superior. And I just wanted to mention that. I mentioned the one-liners. This movie has a lot of them. They're, it's very funny. And that's how you know you have a, a cult classic film, is its requotability. And this movie has quotes from Johnny Cage like, Those are $500 sunglasses, asshole. Or, this is the part where you fall down. <laughs> and then Shang Tsung has, of course, It has begun. He also mentions the catchphrase from the video game, Flawless Victory. And, Your soul is mine. <laughs> so, I also really enjoy the movie for the requotability and the iconography that they introduced here. Here are a few of the other characters that appear or are referenced in the movie that were associated with the video game. Not only do we have Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and Reptile, but we also have Shao Kahn making an appearance at the end. We have Jax, Goro, Katana, Kung Lao is referenced, and Kano, of course. What people mention the most about this movie besides the theme song are the fight sequences in the tournament. So, really quickly, I want to rank the fight sequences, in order of how badass and how much I like them. So there were a total of eight fight sequences in the tournament altogether, and I made a list of which ones I liked and which ones I didn't like. Let's start with number eight, which is the worst fight in the Mortal Kombat tournament in the movie. Liu Kang versus Katana. This flop of a fight is merely thrown in just to give exposition. It gives Katana something a little bit more to do in the movie than just being the exposition dump that she is. <laughs> they wrestle around, they appear to have some sexual attraction towards one another, and then they separate. It's framed like a tournament fight, but it feels more like a sparring session between a karate master and a yoga teacher. 
there are no stakes, no commendable action, and it's surprisingly relaxing. Sung is just watching them as they do it. There's really nothing going on in that scene, and I don't know why they framed it like it was a tournament fight. It was really nothing. It was a big nothing burger. <laughs> now, speaking of another nothing burger, and this one's going to be kind of controversial for a lot of people, but at number seven, I have Johnny Cage versus Goro. It's less of a fight and more of an encounter. Cage, of course, gets his revenge for the death of Art, which is another character that they introduce into the story. But it's more about Johnny Cage outsmarting Goro and landing a few roundhouse kicks than it is about it actually being a fight. Johnny Cage easily dispatches Goro without breaking a sweat or even taking a punch, which, ironically, is the first flawless victory and the only flawless victory that our characters have in the entire film. But this fight is mostly remembered for the sunglasses quote. Those are $500 sunglasses, asshole. <laughs> but yeah, it's not much of a fight. And rewatching it back, I think you'll, you'll agree with me there. And number six, we mentioned Art. Number six is Art versus Goro. Art was a minor character that played a key role in uniting our heroes against the villains of Outworld. And in this sequence, Art is thrown into a fight with Goro that ends up displaying just the pure brutality of Goro and what the kind of evil is that these heroes are facing. And in this scene, Art lands a few punches. He tries to give Goro a run for his money, but of course Goro is this big hulking four-armed monster and he easily dispatches him. My gripe about this fight is that Goro doesn't do anything more dramatic to Art. He doesn't, like, rip his head off or snap his neck or anything like that. He just clobbers him over the head just a few times and kills him. And then, of course, Shang Tsung steals his soul. And number five, another controversial pick, but I'll say Liu Kang versus Sub-Zero. In my opinion, this fight was extremely pedestrian. Two of the most iconic video game characters of all time, Liu Kang and Sub-Zero. But what they get here is a quick, brief tussle that ends up getting resolved when Sub-Zero impales himself with a water glacier. It's okay, there are some cool stunts here, but overall it's very forgettable. Half of the time Sub-Zero is squatting and building like that ice bubble that he was creating and there really isn't much going on. I think it's very mediocre and a lot of people will put it higher just because of the inclusion of Sub-Zero's ice power. But I don't like the way he gets dispatched. I think they could have done something a little bit more clever there. And number four, Sonya Blade versus Kano. Now, this fight doesn't get enough recognition because of how early it happens in the film, but Sonya versus Kano is a banger. Sonya kicks Kano's ass quite a bit, and then Kano banters about killing her partner. He gets a couple good blows on her, but ultimately, my biggest gripe about this fight is that for such a charismatic character like Kano, to have an on-screen presence, he gets dispatched way too prematurely in the film and way too easily. I would have wanted to see this fight draw out a little bit more and maybe Kano didn't have to get killed right away. I'm really interested to see if Kano could have made an appearance at the end of the film, but we'll discuss that a little bit more later. I have some interesting filmmaking factoids for you. And number three... And a lot of people will probably put this on number one or number two. But Liu Kang versus Shang Tsung. It's the final battle of the movie. So the stakes have been elevated and we have a personal connection to our hero. 
there's really good choreography in the fight between Liu Kang and Shang Tsung. Hiroyuki Tagawa and Robin Shu actually performed most of the stunts here. And you really do get to see the prowess of their martial arts training here. They're both very good and very talented with one another. They land punches, they banter quite a bit, and we finally see Liu Kang's fireball at the end of the sequence. I, I do think that this is one of the better fights in the movie. I don't really have a lot of complaints about it, except the fact that during the middle of the fight, Shang Tsung clearly transforms into Liu Kang's brother to manipulate him, and Liu Kang tries to believe that it's his brother that's talking to him. Dude, you just literally saw Shang Tsung morph into your brother. Like, how are you even flirting with this idea that that's actually your brother talking to you? It's clearly Shang Tsung trying to manipulate you. This fight is good. It's very Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and the fact that Shang Tsung dies by getting impaled on a spike pit below them, that's a good reference to the video game as well. Number two, and this will be a lot of people's number one. <laughs> Johnny Cage versus Scorpion. The setting for this fight is incredible. You have Scorpion versus Johnny Cage in the woods where the trees are like symmetrically aligned as far as the eye can see. Scorpion throws a spear, it chases Johnny Cage, and then Scorpion opens a portal to the nether realm. And we see Scorpion in his full ability with his fatality on display here. He removes his face and reveals a flaming skull and tries to burn Johnny Cage alive. There's really good stunt work in this sequence, and the references to the video game are spot on. But I don't think it's quite my number one because of how brief it is and how it's just kind of injected in the middle of the film. This fight could have used a little bit more stakes, but still, really good and one of the most memorable parts of the whole movie. I loved it. At number one, we have Liu Kang versus Reptile. This sequence is so badass, and I don't think I appreciated it as a kid like I should have. The fight relies less on cheap gimmicks and tricks, and you can see the hand-to-hand -hand combat is shot very competently with a very cool backdrop of Outworld's raging lightning storm, and it's illuminating the environment that they're in. Here we also see Liu Kang's patented bicycle kick. And the techno is blaring while they're fighting together. It is a really cool sequence. And it doesn't get enough credit as being the definitive fight scene in this movie. It's tacked on towards the end of the film uh, when the heroes first get to Outworld. But I loved it. This is a really cool sequence. And fun fact for you guys. During this sequence, Robin Shu actually broke a rib. And you can see the shot where it happens. And it made the final cut of the movie. There's a, a part where Reptile throws him up against a stone pillar and Robin Shu hits it with his ribs directly. That actually broke his ribs and sidelined him for a couple days, but he continued filming after that. But that is it. That's my list of my favorite fights in this movie. Liu Kang versus Reptile was a certified banger. I love that fight so much. Now, I'm not a big Paul W.S. Anderson fan. In fact, I think he's kind of a hack. He continually ruins video game adaptations. It's like every video game that's in flux of being produced as a movie, they just throw it to this guy, and the first thing he does is hire his wife. At this time, he obviously wasn't married to Mila Javovich, but I think if they were, he probably would have cast her as, as uh, Sonya Blade. Actually, I take that back. That's actually pretty good casting. <laughs> but still, I digress.
Paul W.S. Anderson, he's a hack. I don't like his movies. Monster Hunter's a disaster, and I mentioned it last week during my Gran Turismo based on a true story episode. But I have to admit, he did some solid work here. This is probably the movie that launched his career and got him all those other video game adaptations. It has the right amount of cheese to be a cult classic, yet enough heft to be taken seriously, unlike the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> Uh, But with all my reviews now, I also want to discuss the things in the film that did not work for me. I went on for about 30 minutes now talking about how much I love this film and how much nostalgia is injected, but I want to give you the opposite perspective. I want to talk about some of the things that don't work in today's lens. For starters, the CGI is atrocious in spots. I do like that Goro was an animatronic pair of face and arms, that were just kind of strapped onto a stuntman's body. In fact, when I was researching this movie, Goro's prosthetic had to only be worn for two minutes at a time because the person that was in the suit could not breathe through it. (laughs) So in the movie, you see a lot of quick cuts and over-the-top shots of him and um, shots that are taken with an extreme close-up on his shoulders and his face. It's because they knew that they couldn't last long in the bodysuit performing the stunt work that often. It's also why he's kind of stiff when he does his fighting. But that's one of the positives that I liked about this movie. The CGI, on the other hand, was the exact opposite of how Goro was presented. First off, let's talk about what the fuck Reptile was supposed to be. Before he transforms into his human version... He is this CGI creature that is ripped straight from the 1980s. I don't know what the fuck they were going for here. And looking back, it looks like the the television series reboot from ABC7 back in the day. <laughs> it is such a time capsule of its time. I don't know how that actually gets passed in 1995 because that's... That CGI alone is already pretty atrocious. I think they should have just went with a a reptile human form the entire time. I don't think they needed to go with the actual CGI creature. Because it just looks bad in today's world. It's just, it's not good. (laughs) Now I've praised the connection to the video game quite a bit. But I would be remiss not to mention the glaring omission of the franchise's staple. The fatality. This movie does not include that many fatalities in it. At least not the ones that you've seen in the video game. Because Mortal Kombat was a launching pad, it needed to be accessible for audiences of all ages. And the decision to hold back on the fatalities, it may have helped the film make it a financial success since this movie got a PG-13 rating. But it also hurt the creative consistency with the brand. You don't see blood, you don't see guts, you don't see the fatalities act out. There's a couple cool sequences that... You can tell they tried their best to reference the video game without overdoing the violence, but it doesn't quite work in this movie the way that I think the new modern Mortal Kombat movie does, where they can make it extra gory, they can make it super compelling with its violence. I mean, just think a bit. How much sicker would this movie have been if we saw Kano rip out a person's heart? Or we saw Reptile eat a person's head clean off. And perhaps we could have seen a montage of Goro mangling the Earthrealm contestants. The limited amount of powers, abilities, the fatalities, 
it's a hugely missed opportunity in my opinion and I would have loved to have seen what this movie could have done with some blood, some gore, and a little bit more of a budget. Now, narratively, I think Sonya Blade and Katana are severely underused in the third act. Sonya's character arc is basically ended when she kills Kano. Then for the later half of the movie, she's just a MacGuffin that goes along for the ride with Johnny Cage and Liu Kang. And Katana, she literally is just... A plot of exposition. She only shows up to tell Liu Kang what to do, and then she disappears. <laughs> she refuses to elaborate further and then leaves. <laughs> I really do feel like the ladies get the short end of the stick uh, to showcase their significance to the Mortal Kombat lore. It's it's a bit of a shame because Talisa Soto is a good actor, and Bridget Wilson is an excellent actor in and of itself. But they didn't have really much to do in this movie, so. Call it nostalgia, but I still really enjoyed this movie. There's a reason why it has a cult following and it has influence over the success of other video game adaptations. People still refer to Mortal Kombat 1995 as the premier video game movie of all time, and there's a lot to love about it. There's also a lot to hate about it, but I lean on the side of loving. And on a scale of 1 to 5 souls, Mortal Kombat 1995 would take four souls for me. <laughs> if you try to look past the schlockiness in the 90s camp, you'll miss the point of the movie. You'll probably hate the movie for that. But as a child of the 90s, it hits all the right notes for me. So, sticking with our format, it's time we close out the episode with some filmmaking factoids and audience reception. Final round, fight! Alright, let's get to filmmaking factoids. This one caught me by surprise, but originally cast to portray Sonya Blade was Cameron Diaz. Diaz was coming off of the mask. This was prime Cameron Diaz. It would have been right before she did There's Something About Mary, too. So just think about that. Cameron Diaz as Sonya Blade. Oh my god, dude. Like, in the 90s, that would have been perfect. She was cast as the role, and... I think it would have obviously given more strength to the cast of characters and actors in this movie to coincide with Christopher Lambert, but Cameron Diaz unfortunately had to drop out. She had to be recast because she broke her wrist training for this film in particular, and that's kind of tragic. I want to see if there's any type of footage or screen testing that shows Cameron Diaz with Kano or Cameron Diaz performing the role and the stunts of this movie that has to be out there somewhere because that is a big missed opportunity i'm not saying that bridget wilson was bad as sonya blade she was actually very good but cameron diaz would have been a absolute grand slam to that point the recasting happened so late during the filmmaking process that bridget wilson's training had to rigorously get expedited to meet the filmmaking deadline her training actually caused the writers to limit the amount of screen time for Sonya Blade, due in part by the fact that Paul W.S. Anderson wanted her to finish training before shooting the scene of her fighting Kano. That scene is actually the final scene that they shot before it hit the can. They had to wait the entire time to get Bridget Wilson the training to do that sequence, so that's why it was the last scene shot for the movie altogether. Bridget Wilson was brought on so late in the development that she couldn't get much to do. They had to rewrite parts of her script and part of her character journey. And to that fact, in an earlier script of this movie, 
Kano and B- Sonya Blade's fight was supposed to end with Sonya sparing Kano's life. Uh, a major rewrite that I think ultimately hurts the film, in my opinion. I think there could have been a way for her to spare his life and have Kano continually be a thorn in their side throughout the entire story. And then the final fight sequence could have been Sonya versus Kano and Liu Kang versus Shang Tsung. That would have been awesome, have the final fight be a trilogy. But I guess they kind of saved that for the next movie. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, man. I Please don't ever let me review Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I beg of you. <laughs> so moving on. Ed Boon, the creator of Mortal Kombat, has gone on record to say that Scorpion is his personal favorite character in the series. He even voices the ninja in the game in the film. So when you get to that sequence where he's fighting Johnny Cage and he says the classic, Get over here! Or get down here! Those were actually recorded by Ed Boon. Ed Boon is the voice of Scorpion. So there's a special mention there and reference. The Shaolin Temple that is home to Liu Kang and his brother is actually a remote location in Thailand. You could only get there by boat. And in fact, it is regarded as the holiest temple in all of Thailand. How they got permission to film there, I have no idea. But it's it's a cool looking set piece. And the fact that it, the Buddhists actually let them film there, I have major respect for them. That is amazing. <laughs> Going back to the Johnny Cage versus Scorpion fight. The fight ends with Johnny Cage killing Scorpion with a bladed shield. But before Scorpion dies and blows up, there is a reference to the video game right in front of us as a transition. We see a photograph of Johnny Cage fly into frame and it's autographed and it says, To my biggest fan. That shot is a direct reference to Johnny Cage's video game finisher called The Friendship. A friendship is basically the opposite version of a fatality. A fatality is meant to taunt your opponent and brutally destroy them on screen since you've already defeated them. A friendship is you making a quick joke and mocking the person without killing them in the video game when you finally defeat them. And the signature and picture in this shot is a direct reference to that. Now let's go to our final factoid. Steven Spielberg was set to cameo in this movie in the first act. In the opening scene of the movie, Johnny Cage is approached by a studio director that influences him to join the Mortal Kombat tournament. The role was originally supposed to be Steven Spielberg in that chair when he lowers the newspaper and says, Hey, Johnny. (laughs) But unfortunately, Spielberg had other obligations to attend to and did not record his cameo. So they got another actor for it. Just imagine how insane that would have been to see... Steven Spielberg in the middle of a fucking Mortal Kombat movie. (laughs) That is really cool to think about. And that is it with filmmaking factoids for you. Now before we finish him, let's take a look at the legacy of Mortal Kombat 1995. Currently the movie is holding two rotten ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. It's scoring a 47% rotten with critics and a 57 rotten rating with audiences. Until recently, Mortal Kombat actually held the distinction of being the highest rated video game film of all time, while also simultaneously being Paul W.S. Anderson's highest rated film in his filmography. 
Critic consensus says that Mortal Kombat suffers from its poorly constructed plot, laughable dialogue, and subpar acting. To which I say, those are all the reasons why people love the movie. (laughs) Now, the movie's not for everyone, clearly, but that didn't stop audiences from making it the third highest grossing film of the year in 1995. And still to this day, the public perception of of Mortal Kombat is discussed amongst gamers and cinephiles as a prime example of how to implement a game source material into a palatable, crowd-pleasing blockbuster. I really like this movie. (laughs) I cannot say that enough. I like this movie even after all these years. But my question to you is, how do you feel about it? Does this movie hold a special place in your heart like it does with mine? Let me know on social media. You can find me on Twitter or X at GilX87. You can follow me on Instagram or threads. My name there is Gilly087. And you can engage with the community on YouTube. Look for post credits with Gil Garcia. So that is going to be it for me for this week's show. Join me next week as we go backwards in time to retcon a colossal failure of a universe. I think you all know what I'm going to be reviewing, but I think it's about time we finally go back and and review it. I hope you all have a great week, and I highly suggest you guys catch a movie.